the, the kind of momentum behind the green transition has also been building for the last you know 15 years or so and the contradictions of that are growing and what that is also causing is it is ostracizing more people from any kind of progressive environmental project if, if environmentalism today is not going to continue dispossession or, or justifying dispossession it has to re really confront that colonial you know not just colonial past but its endurance friends earthlings Welcome to the new series of Turn on Earth, which will be an ongoing series on DDR every four weeks, so usually the first or second Sunday of the month, whenever that falls, at midday. This month, you're going to hear a chat with Paddy Bresnahan. I've known Paddy for a few months now, although we've been hanging around the same circles for a few years. Uh, it was himself that got me up to Leitrim recently to record the Making Relatives visit, um, yeah, and that podcast will be out in the next few weeks, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, Paddy recently co-authored a book with Naomi Milner called All We Want Is The Earth, which is intended as a counter-history of the environmental movement. There's been an increasing number of critiques and critical conversations emerging over the last few years on the environmental movement to challenge the top-down, technocratic, kind of greenwashing, neoliberal agenda that's baked into the movement. Paddy and Naomi's book is a really important intervention along these lines, and I strongly recommend it to anyone who considers himself an environmentalist. So before I drop you into it, I should mention that we had some audio issues at, at the end, so for the last few minutes my voice is of kind of a low audio quality, but it's still audible and I hope that doesn't take you out of the experience too much. All right, Glenn. Um, so I'm Patrick Bresnan and I'm a lecturer in the Geography Department in Maynooth. And I guess I've been working as a researcher and a, a lecturer for maybe 15 years on topics to do with environmental politics and um climate justice environmental justice I and mean, i've called them different things at different times yeah. but um uh that's mostly been in ireland looking at things like fisheries i lived down in castambert was early research so looking at the fishing industry and what was happening there with you know environmental policy and stuff and then um since then i've looked at irish water around the water charges stuff so water infrastructure Agriculture I've looked at and now in the last sort of four or five years, it's mostly been energy and data centers But the thing that connects a lot of that. I mean, I've also done work in Bolivia and I've taught in other places, but I think the thing that's you know that, that connects up a lot of that is a is the rural geography and questions to do with land and the people who live in those places and the kinds of politics that arise in those places the political cultures um, and I think that wasn't an intentional thing, but now that I look back over 15 years, that's one of the, the core threads. And I think that it is probably something that I'm more confident talking about as a, a really sort of significant aspect of any kind of, you know, climate justice movement, progressive environmental social movements in Ireland, yeah, yeah. is to think about rural and agrarian issues. And that's, I suppose, that's that'll just bring us on to talking about the the book that you brought out recently with Naomi Milner um, on Bristol University Press, which is called "All We Want Is the Earth." Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about that today. Um, it says that one of the one of the aims of the book, anyway, is to move beyond or move through blockages and blind spots in the modern environmental movement, and the goal is to do that through 
three interventions that you laid out in the intro and now I'm paraphrasing these if, you, if I'm misinterpreting any of them feel free to jump in um, but the first one is to to challenge to analyze and challenge the the common sense of modern environmentalism and to look at the roots of that the the ideological basis of it the kind of middle class basis of it and the the separation the, the, the false division between nature on one side and then human culture society and history on the other side and how all of this is kind of baked in to the movement uh, and then the second being that many movements many social movements are environmental but don't claim to be and the third that environmentalists must involve themselves in struggles that seem unrelated to environmentalism so i think maybe first we can talk about that that first one and then deal with the second two together if that all makes sense um to to begin with the the, the book talks about aesthetics as being not just how things look, but how they're presented. So what things are left out of a description of something, what things are contained in it. And it makes me think of the the concept in media analysis of a media theory of framing, which sounds like it's the same thing of, you know, what's left in the frame? How, how, is, it, how is a narrative shaped? What's included, what's not included? Um, and there's just one quote from the book here I'd like to read, which is, uh, in the making and telling of modern environmentalism, the birds and bodies of middle-class white America mattered more than the migrant fruit pickers in the fields. And the book also talks about this concept of slow violence where, you know, experimental technologies, new technologies are tried out in marginal places and extraction is, uh, capitalist extraction, resource extraction targets marginal communities that aren't, don't have a strong voice on the national stage or in government. Um, can you talk a bit about that? And maybe if you can draw a line from what you explored in the book to what's going on in modern Ireland. Sure. It was a big question. It was. I'm sorry. I'll try to start from the beginning and unpick it a bit. Um, so the thing about aesthetics. So, I mean, the book, I hope, isn't overly theoretical, but we talk about aesthetics uh, in the book a little bit. And myself and Naomi, we've known each other maybe 10 years. And we've been, this comes out of conversations and work we've done for 10 years. And somebody we're, we're both drawn to is a political philosopher called Jacques Rancière, French political philosopher. And his work is quite difficult, and um, as most French political philosophers are. But um, he, he talks about um, kind of politics of aesthetics. And what he means very briefly about that is, you know, the way that things become perceptible. So when we're talking about aesthetics, as you say, as you say it's like how we perceive things, really, um, is uh, sort of regulated or governed in a certain way. So in terms of this book and the argument we're making, it's, you know, why do certain things appear as environmental issues and others don't? How does that happen? Um, you know, so on the one hand, then, what are the kinds of uh, forms of regulation, forms of knowledge, um, forms of media? So we're talking about popular culture, we're talking about scientific discourses, expert discourse, and so on, which create a certain common sense about what is an environmental issue or what is environmental politics and what isn't. And then on the other hand, how does that common sense get um, disrupted? So in what moments can we look at or at what movements can we look at at certain times where a certain common sense around environmental protection or environmentalism, what counts as environmental, gets objected to? And there is an objection and there is a disagreement. And why that's important is it's like what's environmental for you is not environmental for me. We're talking about different things. That's the politics, is that we have a fundamentally different understanding of what's going on. So in the book, 
there's the four main chapters and it's largely chronological. And what we try to do is on the one hand trace how since the 1960s, what we call modern environmentalism has sort of developed a certain kind of consistency around a certain kind of aesthetics. And we can chart that through certain kinds of, you know, moments. That's what we do in the book. It's, it's mm -hmm. more of a kind of a literary thing than anything. But for example, Earthrise, you know, the, the kind of blue marble planet Earth that was taken from Apollo, I think yeah, Apollo 13 yeah, yeah. or Apollo 11. You know, that was a key sort of image in the shaping of a kind of a, an idea of the global sort of biosphere and that we are on all on this common planet. And this is sort of the basis from which we should act, yeah, yeah. which we challenge in the book. Then another one we look at is um, uh, Captain Planet. was an important car a cartoon Great I watched as a kid, you know, from the early 90s. Then we look at the ideas of the Anthropocene or dominant ideas of the Anthrop Anthropocene today and the ways in which these function as sort of, they change over time, but they share certain kinds of, uh, what would you call it? Yeah, certain kinds of ways of framing, to use your word, environmental issues, environmental politics. And then against that, most of the book is how in those, those moments or against those kinds of dominant framings, there are a whole host of uh, social movements, uh, thinkers who are uh, objecting, basically objecting. And so they're creating a different type of aesthetics around ecological or environmental issues. And yeah. we think that's important. Um, yeah, I think that's important. I might say one thing going back to the first question you asked about the motivation for the book and you know we open with that in the 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 the, the film um don't look now or not don't look now don't look up don't look up yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> which was a, you know a hit film from 2020 2021 2021 and it, a lot of people were you know that's it that that captures a lot of what's going on and we completely agree with that it's like a frustration it's mm. like the science is, is is you know couldn't be sure you know we have all the information we need. We have for a long time, but nothing is changing. Mm. So there is a huge frustration with the lack of change, this inertia. And basically what we're trying to say in the book is that it's not the cause of the problem, but one of the reasons that is, you know, creating that inertia and sort of reproducing the problems is um, modern environmentalism. That's the provocation. Mm. And that we need to sort of you know, radically rethink what some of the assumptions are of, of modern environmentalism and where we can look elsewhere for, for inspiration, I guess. Right, yeah, yeah. And what, um, if you can name any of them, what, what are the, what is it exactly about modern environmentalism that's holding the, holding the movement back or holding the consciousness back? There's a few things. I think in the book we name three blind spots, is what we describe them as. Um, the first one is colonial geographies. Um, the second one is labor. And the third one is um, sort of lived environments, mm. the question of science and knowledge. Those are the three. So I could briefly talk about them. Yes, and that, was like the, the, that thing about science was going to be one of my questions. Um, so you know, it's one of the things I have written down from it is the the, the idea of universal science, you know, science tries yeah. tries to find concepts or phenomena that's universalizable that applies everywhere, yeah. and that sort of steamrolls over yeah. what I think is called embodied observation, the kind of more local, locally specific knowledge, which is usually more 
accurate or useful and it, it, it can take into consideration the complexities of the area of the ecology of the area um, so that was going to be one of the questions is how there's a like there's a bit of a conflict there almost between science and environmentalism even though environmentalism is based on the science so how do you or the conflict between science and the needs of the people sometimes because of the institutions of science rather than the thing itself so how do we make science work for on behalf of the people and behalf yeah. of the movement? well i guess with all three points where you see you know what they share and we are not the only ones to, i mean many people the book is basically a synthesis of what other people have written you know mm. uh so people within political ecology science and technology studies environmental humanities um you know uh, uh, a whole range of marxian scholars anti-colonial scholars so on um is the question of of power is missing in in, in all three of those right yeah. So if we think about the colonial geographies, one, I mean, a, a, an obvious or one of the obvious sort of um, inherited aspects of modern environmentalism. So we really cover from the 1960s onwards, but obviously it doesn't spring out of nowhere. It comes from older traditions. And one of those you know, traditions is the idea of, of a kind of wilderness, which is, you know, nature without people. Yeah, yeah. And that idea of nature without people is rooted very much in a colonial project, which goes back to the 16th century, where you know lands were occupied, and the way they could be occupied was by erasing existing claims to that land, and those claims to that land were also bound up with e forms of kind of ecological knowledge, expertise, you know. So there is a clear link between that point about colonial geographies and the question of science. Mm. Um, because the whole, I guess, the, the, the ideological construct of nature and nature without people, this kind of binary that you mentioned in the beginning, you know, comes out of, of kind of colonial modernity and that, that moment. Mm. We also have of race coming out of that. So these yeah, two yeah, major yeah. like social constructs or foundations of colonial modernity, like race as like a social differentiator and nature as a way of kind of excluding and dispossessing people from their lands, you know, they are all mashed up together. Mm. And the thing is that that's not just a historical event, it's ongoing. And so the reason why that's important to, you know, really foreground when we're thinking about environmentalism today is if we think about like the transition, if we think about um, responses to, you know, climate change, if we think about uh, decarbonization, uh, a lot of these kinds of measures are reproducing the same kinds of uneven development of colonial era where you have sort of areas that are you know justified as you know sinks for pollution or you have areas that are justified as like hosting certain kinds of industrial infrastructure which may provide you know you know so-called green electricity for consumers elsewhere but uh, you know, maybe radically disrupt sort of place-based livelihoods and so on. Uh, mining is a big one, which you might get to in Ireland, where yeah. you know you see very much this, you know, this this continuity. And I think that what's so interesting in Ireland is that in those anti-mining struggles, you know, in the Sperrins and in Leitrim and other parts of rural Ireland, um, that idea of this being somehow con con continuous with much longer histories of you know, extractivism of 
these areas being hinterlands of just being used yeah, yeah that it goes back to colonial times i think that it's it's sort of it's it's quite tangible there it's not like an you know an academic argument that has to be floated in from somewhere else it's mm. it's very present and that's because that experience has been an, an ongoing one it's enduring yeah, yeah. and if you look at indigenous territories in australia you know in, in settler colonial contexts in you know the north america it's even more vivid it's even more the, the case so that is absolutely vital that like if, if environmentalism today is not going to continue dispossession or, or justifying dispossession it has to re really confront that colonial you know not just colonial past but its endurance yeah, yeah. you know in the way in which the kind of architecture of the yeah. the global economy is is designed Leitrim is a really good example of that. I mean, we were both at the climate camp there recently where there's mining is a huge issue there, but there's also the very large scale wind turbines being built on or being proposed to be built on bog land, which is the wrong thing to do for all for a whole host of reasons. But that Leitrim is kind of the perfect example in Ireland, I think, of the, a place that's just considered, yeah, like you said, a hinterland. Um, there's nothing, it's not being, it's not productive, so it needs to be put into production in order to be of value in any way exactly and i i think that you know that that's another motivation for the book is that obviously you know that the thing that we really need to deal with is fossil fuels and uh you know emissions and so on and that's where a lot of attention within environmental you know commentators and scientists is rightly because we need to stop burning fossil fuels and stop emissions but i i think that the, the kind of momentum behind the green transition has also been building for the last you know 15 years or so mm. and the contradictions of that are growing and what that is also causing is it is um, ostracizing more people from any kind of progressive environmental project mm. and i think that this is, is another point that we maybe don't make as clearly in the book, but something that I feel is that um, the way in which modern environmentalism has advanced, particularly since the late 80s, early 90s, is that it has become overwhelmingly a technocratic project. Mm. Um, and that emphasis on, on technology as a solution, but also technologies that are absolutely sort of central to green capitalism, I don't even want to call it green capitalism, but capitalism and yeah, its, yeah. its accumulation strategies. That is going to, it already is leading to um, all sorts of reactions to that. And my, my sense is that it's not just like mainstream environmentalism, or we can call it liberal environmentalism, should be opposed because we need to have a more kind of inclusive, democratic, equitable alternative. It's also because if we continue down that road, not only environmental problems are going to get worse, but the reaction possibly from the right and the mm. far right is going to be there. Mm. They're going to they're going to fill that and they are filling it. Yeah, yeah. And we've seen that. So, you know, it's not again, it's not just a I mean, uh, there's all sorts of ways in which people can probably when we were writing the book is like, OK, modern environmentalism is not one thing. It's a bit of a straw man. There's many different strands to it. That's fine, but it's a book. It's just it's, we're trying to make a provocation, and yeah, yeah. At the very least we need to be critical of some of the things that seem on the surface quite benign. Mm. 
Uh, and the scientific one is a good example. And we use the example of um, this report written in 1991 by uh, Narain and Agarwal from the Center for the Study of the Environment in, in India. And the report is called Global Warming in an Unequal World. And basically they were responding to the first kinds of calculations of global emissions compared by country. And they were basically saying, if you just compare emissions without thinking about what causes them, you know, what kinds of economies they're connected to, what kind of social relationships they're, what you end up doing is like a, CO, a ton of CO2 from say an SUV in the States is equivalent to the ton of, of CO2 from burning charcoal for subsistence energy needs mm. in parts of India. They just become the same. And what you end up doing is flattening. So what seems like an objective, uh, you know, universal form of scientific data collection and analysis ends up flattening mm. the massive differences. So either you foreground the e e questions of equity and injustice, including, the, you know, the colonial inequities and injustice, or you reproduce them. There's no neutral, yeah. you know, there's no neutral, whether it's science or anything else, that just, it's, it's not possible. Yeah, yeah. It comes back to the power, like you said earlier, I don't, I don't mean energy, but like political power, uh, social power. I'd like to try and tie, tie that back now to kind of more recent events. Um, there's a speech made recently by Antonio Guterres, he's the General Secretary of the UN or of some branch of the UN. He's, some, he's an important man anyway. <laughs> and he, it, was, it, was got, it got a lot of attention in the, in the news and it's also one of the things that the right are paying close attention to. And it's, it's actually just going on a tangent for a second. It's, it's somewhere that I think the right are getting ahead of the left, the far right I mean, are getting ahead of the left in a way in having criticisms of the likes of the UN and the World Economic Forum um, you know, they it usually bring that back to some kind of conspiracy, often involving Jews, and take it down kind of a mad rabbit hole. But like some of their cr criticisms, often hit the nail on the head. And the, something that they do draw attention to a lot is the anti-human rhetoric mm -hmm. that gets used by these institutions. And it, I found this speech by Guterres particularly chilling. A lot of it made a lot of sense. It's where the there was a lot of headlines about global boiling, and that's where he said the, the era of global warming has ended, the era of global boiling has arrived. But Later on in the speech, or before that, I think actually, um, he's just talking about the recent extreme weather events, and he says, for vast parts of North America, Asia, Africa, and Europe, it is a cruel summer. For the entire planet, it is, it is a disaster. And for scientists, it is unequivocal. Humans are to blame. Not economic systems, not, not capitalism, not industrial production, but human, the human race itself. Mm. Um, and like I said, that just completely ignores where, who has the ability to affect these things, who has the power. I was wondering, could you talk maybe a bit about that in relation to the environmental movement in Ireland today? So you've got maybe on the radical wing of it, you've got, I guess, Schliele, Extinction Rebellion, the more conservative wing, you've got the Green Party, the NGO sector are a big part of it. Um, how do you think they are? I know XOR, I have a lot of criticisms of them, but in fairness, I do think they are quite good at foregrounding the it's capitalism, that's the problem, not humans. But... Um, how do you think those various different groups are dealing with that issue and how do you think that we can work against that kind of anti-human rhetoric which I think is quite prevalent especially in more liberal kinds of environmentalism and even more radical strands like maybe anarcho-primitivism or whatever not that we need to get into that too mm. much. But. Yeah, I mean it's, it's, it's obviously one of the points that um, you know has been made by 
because it, it came up in the in the in the late sixties, early seventies, with um, the limits to growth report, and a lot of debates around basically a return of neo-Malthusianism neo was called return of Malthus. So Garrett Hardin wrote his tragedy, The Commons thesis in 1968. He was a eugenicist, like mm. proven. Um, and so there's very close ties with this idea of blaming humanity, which kind of folds into population mm. and the kinds of arguments that stem from that, which go back to Malthus, 1798, who was responding to the French Revolution. So, yeah. you know, those kinds of arguments in times of sort of not just crisis as in like an ecological crisis but as in a kind of social revolt and tumult when things are kind of up in the air you are always going to have that reactionary mm. impulse that's where malthus came from he was re was a response to goodwin he was a, a, a anarchist could you talk a bit about that actually just before, just for anyone who's not familiar briefly what was malthus who, who was malthus and what was his response to the french revolution sure he was a uh, I mean, I guess he was, um, at that time in the late 18th century, you had these kind of, what would you call them? There wasn't yet disciplines, but they were working in kind of, these were the beginning of kind of statistics, mm. demography. So this study of population, there was, there was a lot of that going on, the physiocrats, for example, in yeah, France. Yeah. Um, kind of birth of, of kind of classical, sort of liberal political economy. This idea of studying resources, you know, territory, and managing populations. Mm. So that was all, you know, happening. And happening in, in response to the, the radical revolutions and revolts that were happening all around the world. Mm. It was similar in some ways to the 60s, 68, which we talk about in the book. Um, so he was responding to Goodwin, who was a, an anarchist, who was talking about like, you know, fundamental structural change, you know, changing social institutions. And uh, Malthus's argument was that it's not, he was a conservative, fundamentally it's not social institutions that need to change it's that there are too many people mm. um and that you know he had various different recommendations in terms of dealing with that but you know some of that was around you know sterilization and you know also letting poor people die effectively you see a recurrence of the argument in the famine in ireland yeah, yeah. this kind of idea that the market will get rid of surplus populations so you know he's the figure but his ideas are in lots of different, you know, are, are circulate in lots of different ways. And I think, you know, Jason Moore is somebody you, you probably have, maybe have come across him. He's a historical geographer, sociologist, um, has developed this idea of, of kind of world ecology. So thinking about capitalism, not just as a, a system that sort of acts on nature, but one that transforms ecologies. And he's, a, you know, you should definitely check out his work if you haven't and listeners. But um, he talks about the Capitalocene as opposed to the Anthropocene. Yeah, yeah. And that he constantly makes this argument that if we talk about the Anthropocene as this era of dominated by humans, we completely obliterate the specific systems, political, economic, cultural, scientific systems that came into being in the 16th century. And we need to understand those systems in order to change them. And like you say, if we continue to talk about humanity and humans, it gives rise to all sorts of, you know, different responses. They're not all like straight away, let's sterilize, usually racialize poor people, but um, it can be that for sure. But it can give rise to things like, you know, individual 
individuals need to take more responsibility. That's, mm. that's, that's another kind of offshot shoot of that, which is that we're all to blame. So we all need to do our, our part. Do our best, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I do think that most people at some level, at the, you know, recognize that, you know, fossil fuel industries have more responsibility, you know, without having to go into the kind of, you know, thinking about capitalism as a social relation and as a system, we can identify very clearly fossil fuel industries. You know, like 10 companies that are more responsible based on the emissions that they're responsible for. Mm. And we need to do something about that. That doesn't mean we know how to do that. But I think people, I think that there is a, a, a sort of a, a general probably, there's, there's probably more of a recept, reception to that, you know, within the wider population. Oh, yeah. yeah and then also yeah. class inequalities in terms of consumption, um, you know, you know, people can understand that. And I think the water charges, something that gives me, we maybe come to it at some point, but mm. I think the water charges in recent memory, thinking about that as an environmental social movement, that was about, about class and it was about a response to, you know, eco-austerity. Yeah. A, a very kind of top-down technocratic, um, you know, policy that was really driven by structural adjustment it was, it was driven by the deck you know yeah yeah it wasn't because the government suddenly cared about water so i think that that's a really interesting one because it kind of put people on different sides and in terms of thinking about irish environmentalism i don't know xr wasn't around then but certainly you know environmental ngos certainly the green party but environmental commentators were all on the side of we need to pay for water yeah, yeah. and that made it very clear yeah yeah yeah, that was going to be my next question. Actually, it was one of the, the the second and third interventions that the the book lines up are that some many environmental or many movements are environmental without claiming to be environmental, and that envir environmentalists must involve themselves in movements that are unrelated to environmentalism. I'm paraphrasing you again, but yeah. I think that's the general thing. So that was going to be my next question: is well, what are examples of that that are active in Ireland today? I know that war charges a few years ago now, um, but it is it is I think a perfect example of that of, of something that. I mean, because ultimately it was, a, it was defending our water infrastructure, to fighting against privatisation, which yeah. is, and that makes it an environmental yeah. defensive movement. Yeah. Um, it was a real disagreement over what was being talked about. Yeah, yeah. You know, that those were arguing that it was an environmental measure and those were arguing, you know, if we care about water, we have to maintain public, a, a kind of public ownership and public, not just ownership, because Irish water continue to be state-owned, but... Uh, understand it as a something that cannot be commodified mm. um so there was a there was a disagreement fundamentally about that it wasn't like you know they were agreeing on the same issue even you know mm. um but going back to some examples i mean you mentioned that that quote which is worth giving some context for about the birds and white people oh, yeah, dying. Yeah, so yeah. we start the the book starts with the a chapter on um it's really about chemical pesticides and you know one of the one of the things that really gave rise we argue in the book up to, to sort of modern environmentalism or that the key issues after world war ii to the 50s 60s were around um chemical toxicity so these were new chemicals that had been developed um, and chemical technologies largely during world war ii they've been given a big sort of injection of finance and 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 um funding and so on and, and impetus so nuclear was the big one so that was the idea that like literally the, the planet could end 
is that's going to give a huge impetus to some kind of question of like humans relationship to nature and i guess i haven't seen oppenheimer but i guess that's that's somewhat related and the other one was around pesticides um and so ddt was this pesticide that had been developed during world war ii to treat malaria treat mosquitoes in for soldiers fighting in the south pacific and so on and um you know during peacetime then those chemical industries kind of collaborated with the uh, agribusiness, particularly in California and then, you know, outside of the US as well. But that was where a lot of the uh, agriculture production was, was happening, but also where you see industrial, you know, what we think of today as industrial agriculture really developed was in California, Southern California in this time. So the, the, these chemical pesticides were used to get rid of pests and herbicides too on a huge scale. Mm. So what's interesting to us is that Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, is seen as this book that launched the environmental movement. And it is a, a, an amazing book for lots of reasons. Not least that it shifts the kind of, you know, the space maybe, or the, the kind of, going back to aesthetics, where environmental concerns are located. It's no longer in like Yosemite National Park. Mm. It's no longer in wilderness, which is a very masculine kind of idea. It's in your house. I think it's quite significant. She was a woman. She was a scientist, but she had also to stop working as a scientist, look after her mother. So it's interesting to think of her as this feminist figure mm. who was also thinking about environmental problems in the home, in the domestic space, yeah, which yeah, had yeah. previously been sort of sacrosanct. And part of the reason why the book was so effective is because of that, it really tapped into this fear mm. in your own home of environmental toxins. And that's why partly it became so popular and mobilized people. But the, the main concern she had was about, um, was about water and so on, but it was around birds getting poisoned. Mm. That's Silent Spring, the name of the book. But the, the, the people dying in the fields were mostly migrant workers in Southern California, coming from Mexico, but other places too, who were you know, also dying in the fields and getting very sick from exposure to the same pesticides, same chemicals. And in the remembering of DDT as an environmental issue. It's Rachel Carson and her, ultimately the success DDT was banned in 1972. That's the story that is told. Whereas the story of the United Farm Workers, which was the union that formed in the sixties, uh, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, they were, you know, they were a union fighting for other issues, but one of the main ones was health of the workers. And one of the main things they did was basically what you could call now like a citizen science project where mm. they weren't given any support by the institutions. There was a few public health officials who maybe helped them, but they had to collect their own data on what was happening. And at the same time confront, uh, you know, you know the, the sort of racist structures of Californian public health system and so on that refused to recognize that this was happening. So the arguments were that they were getting sick because they were weaker, that they had weaker immune systems that they were just because they were not white. Mm. So this type of thing. But they were also incredibly successful in that they forced the companies to the table because of this boycott of grapes. So they linked up with consumers, largely white consumers in Northern California, a place like San Francisco, by saying, you're eating toxic grapes. Mm. Our bodies are getting contaminated. We have common cause. We need to do something about it. The boycott worked in the sense that it forced the capitalist 
to to do something so because it stopped them making their money and uh they managed to get like uh various sort of bans on some of the pesticides they managed to get like some transparency in terms of oversight of what was being used but you know ultimately like Dolores Huerta was protesting in the 90s against the same issue yeah yeah. George Bush senior in White House the same thing was happening but it gets forgotten so I think it's a really good example that one of how you know that you know Silent Spring which is a wonderful book is nothing to be taken away from it as an important book but what it does is it it focuses on nature without people it emphasizes science as a solution and it also has faith in ultimately has faith in liberal state institutions to recognize the issue and then to regulate yeah, yeah. but in reality there was thousands of chemical pesticides that were not regulated because the chemical industry agribusiness were always two steps ahead mm. it, it didn't solve the problem it maybe solved the problem for bird watchers but it didn't it didn't stop the it didn't it didn't it didn't help the the, the migrant workers who were right, still yeah. getting sick yeah and that also doesn't even get to the point um because i i don't want to just spend the whole time talking about this but the other part of that chapter is also how these chemicals were exported to other countries mm. so mexico through the green revolution then india then all around the world they were being used there's not the same regulation you know chemicals they get banned in the us outsource then certain kinds of agriculture production to other places it's not regulated so if you're not paying attention mm. to these issues of race capitalism colonialism the problem's not going away it's just out of the picture yeah, yeah. that's that's that yeah, that's it yeah. you know i think that's the core argument in that that chapter. so how do you think then that currently active environmental groups in ireland are, are dealing with that, that question I and mean, i know like i think a lot of them do avoid political and economic questions and focus on tech fixes even like extinction rebellion who would like said uh, their analysis is is good so a a lot of the time in terms of centering the the issue of capitalism but even their strategy is focused on lobbying the state to do better and to to, you know bring green technologies on board to disinvest from fossil fuels to 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 follow basically lobbying the state to follow the science and it seems to be it seems to follow on directly from that thread set up by carson um yeah but in general how do you how do you think the environmental movement today in Ireland is dealing with that, that 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 problem. Well, like you say, the environmental movement is multiple things. Multiple groups. Yeah. I think in terms of the dominant voices, like the commentary that you hear, so that would be the you know environment NGOs, you know certain journalists, scientists who who have a platform and talk about these things, and certainly the Green Party. Um. I think, because maybe it will help us get back to this question, which I didn't go into that much about labor. I think it's, it's interesting that the, the focus is farming. I would say beyond other things, the focus is around farming. And that at one level makes a lot of sense. It's the majority of our emissions, 35% or something. Mm. So if you're just thinking in terms of emissions, which is something we do need to get down mm. when you think about farming. But there is a, 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 a again a, a history of within mainstream environmentalism of blaming maybe or seeing, for want of a better word, like blue collar workers, people who work either in industries, you know, like petrochemicals, 
but also it could be work in automobile sector, it could be farming, mining, fishing, as the problem. And, you know, that is, becomes particularly clear, I think, in the 1980s with this idea of sustainable development, which starts taking off, where there is blame put on, particularly in the global south, say farmers, people who use the land for misusing the land, or deforestation, it's for people who are cutting down the forest because they don't know. Mm. And what that ignores is that there is a much bigger political economy that creates the conditions in which people's labor happens. Mm. They don't do it because they don't care about trees or they don't care about fish or whatever. They do it because they need to make a living. And I, I think you can see that in Ireland with the farming thing. Mm. I think that it, the focus on farming and farmers takes the attention away from what is a globalized agri-food industry. That's what needs to change. It's, it's obviously a big thing to change. Mm. But the, if you only focus on the farmers, what you do is you create regulations and measures to force them to do things. The ones who are bigger, who have more resources, just as what happened in California, just as what's happened all the time, they'll be able to, to outcompete. They'll yeah. find ways of investing in technologies, they'll find ways of outsourcing production, lobbying the government, all sorts of things. And the smaller ones will get pushed out. And that's the history of Irish agriculture since the 60s, it's consolidation. And I think the problem with that is you're, you know, there's a few different things, but I think that it's really important to diagnose the problem because if you don't diagnose the problem properly, you're not going to come up with adequate solutions. So, you know, if you just blame on the farmer, there's just going to be an emphasis in terms of regulation and so on. Whereas if you think about the wider political economy and the food system in general and how food is produced, well, then you could start thinking about things like looking at Tull of Bio, looking at the Land, Land uh, Workers Alliance in the North, looking at other, um, I think, other groups which are basically about trying to use land in a way that can generate livelihoods and generate economic development in a way that is caring of that land and sustainable of that land, but also allows people to stay in those places in order to make those projects and ideas more than just very niche things, very small localized projects, there would need to be a huge amount of state support for them. And that's where I feel like there needs to be more emphasis. And there's clearly ways in which there can be an overlap there between, you know, those who want to change the current model of farming in Ireland for environmental reasons, for emissions, and those who want to create you know, living countryside, like living rural areas and not just places that are for carbon sequestration or for tourism or for... Um, and I, I think people have made those arguments for a long time when we talked before they started, like there is a tradition of that. Like Pater O'Donnell is a good example. Um, up in Donegal, the co-op that was there, it was set up by, um, what's his name? Father Dyer, I forget his name. These kinds of models, yeah. These kinds of models which are there um, even Bordnemona in its earlier days, that was about rural industrialization. It was a really kind of, you know, anti-colonial project because it was about delinking from Britain, our own resources, develop turf for our own energy sufficiency, but also provide jobs, like modernize these places, build houses. It was like, it was a relatively a small project, but it was a, 
for me at least, I see it as quite visionary mm. and also very inspiring for today. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas most environmentalists would see it as like an absolute like tragic chapter yeah, yeah. in Ireland's environmental history. And in, in ways it is, if you just focus on the burning of peat and the emissions, but if you focus on the kind of political will, the kind of values, the, the sort of institutions that help that happen, that's what matters, you know. If you take those, you could maybe use them for more re reparative bog restoration or whatever. Yeah, you know yeah. What I mean? yeah, yeah. That's that's a, that's a particularly interesting one, and it is a difficult thing to tease out. But it's a, it's one of the points that right wing media bring up a lot. Like I've, I've read it and gripped and various other things like that. That they're quite rightly drawing attention to the ridiculous situation where you can't buy and sell Irish turf, but you can buy German beet briquettes down at the petrol station. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That like we're not allowed to produce it anymore, but we can still burn it. <laughs> so yeah. it's like that kind of carbon mar carbon markets and like buying and selling carbon credits and all that that allows that kind of thing to keep happening. And yeah. it, it is ridiculous and it makes it difficult to justify. But then on the other hand, the loss of the bogs is a tragedy and like they do need yeah. to be protected as, as, yeah. Yeah, as a unique landscape, not just as a carbon sink, but as a unique habitat, yeah. a unique uh, bioregion. Absolutely. Um, I know there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. And I don't, you know, I, I think sometimes almost in my effort to sort of provoke because we need to talk about these things, it can come out as if I'm anti-environmentalist, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not, not at all. But no, it is important to, to complicate these things and like, it, it's not as straightforward as they just need to be protected at any cost and that we shouldn't consider things like self-determination and self-reliance and the, growing an indigenous economy and making the economy stable mm. and you mentioned Pat O'Donnell and the kind of struggles for land or like who 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 controls the land democratic control of the land that kind of brings us on to the last thing I want to talk about we're coming up in time so I don't, we could dig into that stuff for a lot more but um, something that you touch on a lot in the book as well is the anti-colonial movements that were active around the same time as environmentalism was being developed and that influenced it but are left out of the story. You mentioned um, various anti-colonial Marxist, anti-imperialist and pan-Africanist writers like uh, Kwame Nkrumah, is that how you pronounce mm -hmm. the name? Walter Rodney Cabral, um, that they were making the same or better arguments than environmentalists were making 20 years beforehand, but they're doing it in the context of freeing colonial peoples from imperialist rule, from capitalist rule, trying to forge their own political and economic systems separate from the capitalist system. Um, so could you talk about that groundwork and how that can be built on today, but specifically in the context of, of, of Ireland and how does it, because the book, the book is, the title of the book, we, All We Want Is The Earth, comes from a, a song by James Connolly. Um, and so as well as looking at those, those, those influences, can you talk about what's, what scope there might be for Lincoln Environment, environmental movements today in Ireland with the movement for national liberation, um, especially since we have reunification is on the cards, but it, it'll more than likely be reunification along capitalist lines that maintain this like cl colonial relationship we still have with the, the wider capitalist economy. Yeah, well, that was another big question. That was a big question. <laughs> yeah, and I I'm glad you asked it because it's um, I think it's a really important question and it's a question that I don't have any you know, well worked out answer to, but it's a question I'd like to keep thinking about and I think is being thought about within 
you know, environmental activist circles and social movement circles for sure. Um, and I think it's in the kind of atmosphere, whether or not it's being, you know, identified explicitly, it is there. Um, and I think that goes back to the kind of, um, you know, that this whole kind of decolonial moment in a way that we're going through. I, you know, in the, in the end of the chapter, we talk about the toppling of the statues. Mm. And that this wonderful project that Forensic Architecture did with Rise St. James, a community in Mississippi, in Louisiana, around toxic air. And they make the point that, um, you know, if toxic air is a monument to slavery, how do you pull it down? That's the quote. And I think that that idea of, of kind of the ecological crises that we're facing today as being, you know, legacies and also kind of enduring through the structures of colonialism and neocolonialism um, and, you know, institutions like slavery and racism it gave rise to is a really important and deep one. And I think in Ireland, we are a really good, we're, we're maybe not a good, but an interesting place to explore that. And the book isn't really about Ireland. It takes that, that t the, the title from Connolly. Um, but, you know, clearly we were a country that was kind of a laboratory for colonial technologies. Mapping is the obvious one, William Petty. After the Cromwellian uh, invasion, you know, the first national map that was undertaken, the kinds of expertise that were developed in surveying, engineering, you know, building like canals, this kind of environmental transformation work, um, ways of subduing indigenous, the kinds of discourses around like natives mm. being ignorant, not able to use that. A lot of that was developed in Ireland and then exported elsewhere. So it, it's, a, it's a really important place to look at that. Mm. And I think today we can see similar, you know, there's ways in which technologies are developed here um, now, including around data centers, which I don't think we'll get a chance to, that gets exported. But um, so going back to the, the thing about the anti-colonial movements in the 60s, 70s, so I'd say that was for me the most important chapter mm. and the kinds of political projects and horizons that kind of come out of that moment for me, are the things that sort of stick with me. And so the two that we look at in that chapter, Amilcar Cabral, who was a revolutionary, a militant, you know, he led kind of struggles, the movements for national liberation in Guinea-Bissau, Cape Verde, Angola, other kinds of um, Portuguese colonies. He was central in Pan-African thought, as you said. The other is Sylvia Winter who was from the Caribbean involved in, uh, she was a, a writer, activist in anti-colonial movements and then subsequently in thinking about decolonization after independence. But um, both of them, but uh, particularly I'll talk about Cabral because I think he's most interesting. He was an agronomist, so he studied in Lisbon. Like a lot of these figures, they left the kind of colony, went back to the metropole, mm. were educated, kind of middle class, educated and then came back. So when he was in Lisbon training as an agronomist, he was also involved in anti-fascist student movements, would have come into contact with a lot of the kinds of radical, I'd imagine, thought that was going around in the 60s, mm. particularly in those student circles. Went back to, to Guinea-Bissau, which is in West Africa, and basically start between 1963-73 when he was assassinated, led these movements. But um, he also was deeply involved in the agriculture of Guinea-Bissau. So he, his first job was surveying the land in Guinea-Bissau to find out what was grown, how it was grown and so on. 
And through that intimate knowledge, he understood that as a colony, there was monocultures, plantations, particularly it was for groundnut that the Portuguese had, and that this was ecologically damaging. It was ca causing soil erosion. It was causing landslides. It was causing, uh, you know, um, soil degradation in terms of nutrients. Mm. And it was also exploiting the people because it was producing food that wasn't being consumed by them, it was being exported, and their labor was being ex exploited. Mm. So for him, like liberation was not just about a liberation of the population of society, it was also about the land and the soil. And these things were very much tied up. And that with national liberation, with sovereignty, you could develop a different type of relationship to the land, a different type of agricultural production, and also a different culture, which just seems, you know, so, uh, it also seems so, you know, important to today. And if you want to think about that in the context of Ireland, where there are many sites, whether it's around culture forestry, whether it's around the bogs, whether it's around farming and land, um, mining, wind farms, data centers, there are many struggles that are around land. And for me, a really important task for social movements, people on the left, is to think about how those different sites of struggle, which are often quite localized, even though they are creating networks, alliances, and so on, they are all linked to a, a model of state development and relationship to the land that, apart from a very brief period, which is when Bornemona was set up, I think, 30s, 40s, 50s, it was a brief period which is seen as the sort of dark, insular past, but I think we need to go back to because there's lots of elements of it that are, you know, anti-colonial. Mm. Uh, you can see it since the, the 70s, really, uh, when Ireland joined the EEC, but also when we started to open up to FDI and so on. You know, a lot of that was about tax. And obviously our corporate tax regime is like stellar in terms of attracting FDI. Yeah. But the other thing that's forgotten, I think, is that the other thing that was promised was land, water, sinks for pollution. Uh, and now with data centers, energy. So our resources are effectively sold to, you know, global corporations who come here, largely US now, US tech, who come here, who benefit from the tax, but also from resources and the infrastructures that sort of channel those resources to them. And I think that it would be like, you know, one of the places where you can see links between the different sites is to challenge that model and to say that that's not going to, it's, it's not going to work. The contradictions are going to continue to mount up, whether it's around energy security, whether it's around, you know, privately owned wind farms, whether it's around the Sitka spruce plantations, whatever it is, there needs to be a different model. And I think, I think that the groups do see that. But until there is something more coherent, it will keep happening. And what you'll have is fairly localized campaigns that are fighting what is ultimately a, a, not just the state, but the state, you know, uh, you know, circuited into global capital. So it is, it's, a, it's a massive thing to, to take on. Um, but we have to, again, like I said earlier, you have to diagnose the problem in order to think about properly, in order to think about what the appropriate political response is. When you say something coherent, do you mean, I understand, I understand that to mean, like, a, 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 a broad-based movement with a coherent vision of what to move forward to.
Yeah, I think so. And I think there are a lot of interesting debates, including happening here, you know, with Rise, for example, um, and other other groups. Uh, you know, it's not one particular, you know, not have any allegiance to any political party or anything, but around eco-socialism. And I think anyone who's involved in, you know, environmental politics on the left is very aware that in the last three, four years with Green New Deal, degrowth, eco-socialism, there is a very lively set of um, visions of what the future could look like. What there isn't is a kind of, or, you know, a, a popular movement and organizing capable of achieving that. But we have that, we, we have what looks like some kind of a horizon mm. and some demands that are very clear, like decommodify most things, housing, transport. Those are popular demands. And um, yeah, we, we need to make it popular. And to go back to the very early part of the, the, the podcast, like for me, the, a real problem with the mainstream or modern environmental movement is this annexing of environmental issues to sort of technocratic elite mm. responses. Whereas what has to happen is it has to be popular or working class, whatever you want to define that as. But working class is a, a much more broad category than just waged industrial working class, like all the workers, you know, non-waged, waged, whose labor is exploited for capitalist accumulation. Whatever you want to call it that or popular, it needs to be that. It needs to bring those you know, those people together and whether it's through unions, whether it's through community campaigns, whether it's, it's all of it, like everything needs to be pushing against the same thing in order for it to come down and something else be built. So, you know, yeah, that's where we need to, that's the book is, is, is sort of, is trying to also contribute to that, that, that we have this history, which was popular, that was working class and we can, you know, it's there again. We just have to see it, we have to you know, be able to find it. Yeah. Sound. I think it's pretty pretty much have to finish up now. But um, to finish off, is there is there anything else you want to say to close? And is uh, I know you've a book launch coming up. If you want to plug that. Oh yeah. The uh, well, it's on the twenty sixth September in Connolly Books, which is perfect place to have it. Yeah. Um, and I hope people turn up. I I really hope because I I'm, I don't go out that much. <laughs> I really hope there's people there who it was a bit like climate camp. Uh, it was lovely to see people I hadn't seen in ages from Shomersbury or from other things. And I feel like, you know, it would be nice for the launch to be a place for people to meet and for us to chat, as opposed to it being a a place for me to talk about the book or Naomi. I just, it would be nice to just have interested and sound people together for a bit of a night. Right, so that's it for this month. If you'd like to support the podcast, please subscribe at patreon.com forward slash turning earth. The Patreon currently brings in between 30 and 40 quid a month, which is much appreciated, but it's not anywhere close to making it a financially sustainable project. The goal is to bring in enough so that I can work on the podcast for one day each week and really dedicate proper time to researching all these different issues and developing the output to platform issues that get ignored by the mainstream media. To achieve that, we need to bring it up to around four or 500 quid a month as a, as a minimum. Because um, there's also other stuff to look after after that as well, like uh, Garrett doing the graphic design, the podcast host and all the rest of it. So if you have the money to spare, please throw some into the pot. If you can't afford to join the Patreon, there's lots of other ways you can help. Please like, subscribe and leave reviews on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, whatever apps you use to access the podcast. And follow us on social media as well, like and share and all that crap. 
may seem like nonsense, but all of that stuff is what gets the podcast heard by new listeners, so it's very important. You'll find links to all that at linktree.com forward slash turning earth. Last but not least, if you're not already listening to this on DDR, do yourself a favour and look up Dublin Digital Radio. Follow us on social media and listen in. There's a heap of class shows on there that are vital antidotes to the monotony and propaganda we're surrounded by. Right, it's long before.